Welcome to Season 9 of American Political History, Wars Within Wars, the Yamasee War. The power players had not yet shown their hands in this war. If the Creek Nation or the Cherokee fully committed to attack South Carolina, the colony would have been lost. Contrasting from the Creek, the Cherokee had not killed many Carolina merchants, likely only a few villages independently participated in the Good Friday Massacre. In the summer of 1715, Carolina had sent their few remaining merchants in an attempt at diplomacy with the Cherokee. John Chester was appointed and sent by the assembly. Eliza Wingen and Robert Gilchrist asked for 50 pound sterlings for gifts to outfit their peace mission and a 300 pound bounty if they could successfully bring Cherokee sachems to Charlestown for negotiations. The peace process would be long. Each Cherokee town acted independently. Discussions would have to take place with every sachem in every village. In the winter of 1715, the merchants returned with eight Cherokee sachems, who were accompanied by 100 warriors, and they began peace talks in Charlestown. The diplomatic ceremony included a military parade, gun salutes, native dances, formal smoking, speeches, rum drinking, and most importantly, giving and receiving of gifts. The Cherokee sachems agreed to join Carolina in an attack of the creek, specifically the Savannah Nation, in November of 1715. Not understood at the time was that they were only negotiating with sachems from a few small villages, a fraction of the Cherokee Nation as a whole. As the Carolina army approached the abandoned Savannah Nation settlements, there was no sign of the creek or their Cherokee allies. General Moore knew they were likely being monitored by native scouts, looking for any signs of weaknesses, so they decided the army should start building a fort as they waited. Unknown to him at the time, the Cherokee and the Creek were about to start negotiations on jointly attacking his forces and their fort. General Moore then took one of the key decisive actions of the whole war. Leaving 200 men to garrison the fort, he took 300 troops north into Cherokee territory, not to attack, but as a show of force in an attempt to start diplomacy. As they marched, General Moore's forces would first encounter a Cherokee hunting band. Likely framed like happenstance, it was positioned as diplomatic feelers, so they could gather information on the army under the guise of sharing food. The next day, General Moore would receive an invitation to Tugelo, the principal Cherokee village in the region. It was located at the confluence of the Savannah and Tukoa rivers. General Moore and his officers shared a meal with Cherokee sachems. That night, they slept in the Cherokee longhouse with loaded guns and shifts keeping watch. The next day, negotiations began with the chief sachem of the village, Chief Charity Hagee. General Moore asked if the Cherokee would join them in battle with the Creek Nation. During negotiations, sachem Hagee would admit that Carolina merchants had been killed at Tougaloo during the Good Friday Massacre, but insisted that it was individual warriors taking vengeance, not a coordinated plan. General Moore had no choice but to take this at face value. Sachem Hagee said he would not attack the Yamasee, since they were distant kin, lying, assuming Moore's ignorance of Native Nations' relationships. General Moore then asked if the Cherokee would be willing to join them in an attack on the Catawaba. Sachem Hagee dodged answering that question, but he did let slip 
that he was expecting a Creek delegation to discuss possible war with South Carolina. They eventually arrived that if Sagem Hagee was going to agree to an attack with Carolina, the only nations he would be willing to attack were the Savannah Nation, Uchi, and Appalachie. Sachem Hagee was stalling for time. There was 300 well-armed soldiers camping just outside his village. This certainly diminished the Cherokee warriors' agreeability to war with South Carolina. Fighting in Carolina was one thing. Fighting on the doorstep of your home was far more dangerous. The next day, Sachem Hagee informed General Moore that he had invited a delegation of Creek to Tougaloo in two weeks for peace talks. Colonel Moore, General Moore's brother, would take two dozen soldiers in an attempt to rally support with other local Cherokee sachems. The month of January 1716 was spent with ceremonial greetings with the arrival of the Creek delegation. General Moore would spend time strategizing with his officers on what their diplomatic approach was going to be in the upcoming negotiations. Meanwhile, the Army's scouts reported spotting Creek scouts. They estimated there was a force of 200 Creek warriors nearby. If war broke out, the army would be outnumbered by the Creek and Cherokee and likely encircled. General Moore dispatched a mounted patrol, but had not heard from them for about a week. Suddenly, war broke out. To the shock of the South Carolina Army, 12 Creek warriors had arrived in Tougaloo, and the Creek killed them in the middle of their village. Sachem Hagee would explain that he wished to strike first and sell their valuable captives to Carolina a reasonable cover story, it was much more likely that the motivation was to force the Creek to be the enemies, thus positioning the Cherokee as the only viable ally to South Carolina. General Moore provided the Cherokee with 200 muskets and powder for an attack against the Creek war band. He then reorganized his own troops, leaving Colonel Hasting with 50 men to accompany the Creek and 150 men to garrison the newly built Savannah Town Fort, Then he took the rest of his forces back to Carolina to defend the colony. Peace with the Cherokee had come at a heavy price, a protracted war with the Creek. Long-term peace for Carolina was far out of sight. The Carolina colony was not in a good position to fight a war of attrition. The treasury was nearly bankrupt, the economy had collapsed, and what plantations remained were nothing more than cramped refugee camps. This led the assembly to reduce the size of the army from 1,400 to 300, and the number of fortifications from 12 to 7. The remaining men in the army would have to provide their own rations, or pay the government for rations. Most garrisons would grow small crops around their forts and able to feed themselves. Many of the men remaining in the army would be slaves. The laws prohibiting slaves from having weapons were loosely enforced in this wartime mentality. In April of 1716, Governor Craven had to return to England to refute claims that he stole property from Spanish dignitaries who had visited Charlestown a few years earlier. These claims would take Craven a decade to exonerate himself from. The assembly would turn its attention to figure out how to get the Indian trade back up and running without a repeat of the Good Friday Massacre. In June of 1716, the assembly passed a new Trading Act, despite the opposition of the few remaining merchants. Private trading would be forbidden, The Indian trade would be re-established as a government monopoly. Commissioners were appointed to oversee the trade, and all Indian trade could only be conducted at three factories, which would be the soon-renamed Fort Moore at Savannah Town, a fort that was built at the Congaree River, and a fort that was built near the Winyah Bay. The extension of credit to natives was to be banned. 
regulatory requirements were set in place for purchasing or selling captives, and additional harsh punishments were set into law for merchants who violated any of these new regulations. The other growing political storm was the rage with which the population of South Carolina felt towards their proprietors. There was open talk of rebellion everywhere in South Carolina. The Assembly started using its agents in London to lobby for arms and ammunition, even British soldiers. We are fully convinced that the Lord Proprietors must be willing and afford assistance to this province as is absolutely necessary to preserve it from ruin and desolation even going so far as to send a letter directly to the king in March of 1760. Late in 1760, they would send a second letter, which recognized that Whitehall was reluctant to provide support. They argued, Our colony once flourished, and would flourish again with the support and leadership of the crown. This was a barely disguised plea for South Carolina to be made into a royal colony. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share the show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.